It's that time of year again. It is Christmas season. Can you believe it? How many of you love this time of year? Like you absolutely love it. You live for it. Great. How many of you it stresses you out? I saw some of the same hands. Okay. It's a paradox, isn't it? Well, we are starting Advent, and so you heard the the devotional thought from uh, Jess and Meredith, and over the next couple Sundays, you're going to hear from different people about uh, just some thoughts on Christmas and building up to that. And I mean, really, what a depressing thought when you think about that God looked down at humanity in Genesis and said, I regret that I have made them. Think about that. God starts in Genesis by making this perfect existence. We choose sin because we believe a lie from Satan. We've been believing lies from Satan ever since. Humanity got so bad in that short amount of time that God, who made out of joy and gladness in his character and who he is, made all of humanity, created it. That same God in just a short amount of time looks down at humanity choosing sin and says, I regret that I have made them. And the rest of the book, the rest of the, that, by the way, I've heard comedians talk about this is like, like, why do we decorate church nurseries and kids nurseries with Noah and the ark? Like, why is that cute? Like God destroyed all of humanity. <laughs> like, it's really not that fun of a story. But uh, so God looks at the world and says, I regret that I have made them. He didn't regret that he had made the animals. He didn't regret that he had made trees or mountains or the solar system. God had regretted that he had made his prize, and that was people. God of the universe looked out at all the sin that had captivated humanity and said, I regret that I have made them. The rest of the book, the rest of the story, is God not living out of that regret. God living out of his joy. God living out of his creation. God living out of the joy and the mercy and the grace of making us in the first place and then redeeming us. And so the story of Christmas has to start with some bad news or else there's nothing to anticipate that's good. It has to, it has to involve some bad news first. And the bad news is that, that, that that's... That's the, the beginning of Christmas is the, the Advent season is all about waiting, the waiting, the anticipation, the, but what are we waiting for? What are we looking forward to? We can't answer that question if we don't allow ourselves to understand the bad news first, and that bad news is that sin broke humanity, and we chose to let that happen. And we choose to continue to let that happen in our own lives day in and day out. The beauty of the story of Christmas is that God did, did send us redemption. The beauty of the good news of Jesus is that we don't have to live in that sin anymore. We don't have to live in that regret. We don't have to. So this week, we're starting this four-week series in Advent where we're just going to talk about different aspects of what Advent is. And every week, we get a little bit closer to Christmas. I can appreciate the stress that Christmas brings because there's a whole lot attached to it, culturally speaking. And I don't want to lose any of it. I don't want to lose any of the the joys of it and the traditions that come with it, the cool things that come with it. Megan and I were just talking last night. This year, Josie's old enough to really, really be captivated by Christmas, and we're just really looking forward to driving her around and showing her all the Christmas lights because she just loves them. And it doesn't take much to impress her. Like, we drove past this giant house down on the other side of Willow Grove the other night, and all they had in the front yard was just this little tiny tree lit up, and I thought, like, that's it? That's what you chose? Like, you actually intentionally lit up that one tiny tree, and the yard is just massive, but she's still, like, in awe and wonder of, of just a little twinkling lights on this tiny tree. So I don't want to lose any of that. But I think that if we don't prepare our hearts for the beauty of Christmas, we'll miss it, and we'll get wrapped up in the wrong parts of it. So I think it's important that we take the the Advent season and we talk about this stuff and we look into it. And so this morning, we're going to spend some time in Matthew chapter 1. If you want to turn there, it's on page 558. And today, we're just going to look at that, preparation. We're going to look at the word preparation, and we're going to look at a character in Scripture that his whole body, his whole story embodied preparation. 
His whole, his whole narrative for his life was, was to prepare us, to prepare the world to receive Jesus, to receive this gift from God. But let me just start out to just think about, like, how do you personally prepare for a day? You know, are you a shower first person? Are you, uh, are you the kind of person that needs coffee before you can function at all in the morning? Are you a morning person? Are you a person that just the part of your routine is you need to get up and get some exercise, get the blood flowing because maybe you won't do it or maybe if you, if you don't do it in the morning, it just it'll, it'll throw off your whole day? We all have these like practices and routines to help us get ready for the day. We all have things that we do from what we eat, what we choose to eat, and when we choose to eat it, to the way that we put our socks on in the morning, whether you do it on the right foot first or the left foot first. Like we all have routines, and we all do things to prep, prepare ourselves to get through the rest of the day. And I think it's the same for us when we look at how we walk through life with Jesus. We, we prepare ourselves for that because our days are filled with different activities. And sometimes the, it's, it's the same thing. You wake up, you do the same thing, you go to the same place, you, you do the same job, and, and that's, that's just your rhythms of your life. But there's a morning routine that I think we all go through. Uh, I married a morning person, which is annoying sometimes. Uh, and uh, when we first got married, I realized that me moving slow in the morning was annoying to my morning person wife who was like up and ready to go. And so I actually build in time in my day to wake up and do nothing when she's not awake yet so that it doesn't annoy her to see me sit and stare at the floor for 10 minutes for no reason whatsoever other than the fact that I need time to just stare at the floor for no reason whatsoever. I build that into my routine. It helps my life. So what is your routine? I think that if we, if, we, if we look at our lives and we look at our relationship with Jesus, that we can probably see where that ties into our routine. Are you a person that, that makes sure that you're in the Word before the rest of your day goes on? Or, or someone that, you know, you have a certain time in your day where you, you throw that passage into your audio Bible and you're listening to it or you, you read it or over your lunch break or whatever, but like it's part of your routine, to prepare your heart to be used by God on any given day. Preparation isn't always easy, though, is it? Like, to prepare for something isn't always easy. John the Baptist's life was just riddled with preparation. He was preparing his life. His life was just preparing himself and the world around him to receive an amazing gift in the person of Jesus. And sometimes we prepare and we prepare and we prepare and we prep and we plan and things still don't go the way we want it to, right? Like it doesn't matter what your morning routine is. It doesn't dictate that if you follow all the morning routine that you put yourself through that you're going to have an amazing day. We can control what we can control. We can prep. Now I have a story of prep. I'm not known for my preparation. That should be shocking to all of you. But... When I wanted to ask my wife to marry me, I was prepared. I had prepared it. I had it ready. I knew exactly what I wanted to do, how I wanted to do it. I had prayed for signs from God, and God in His graciousness gave me those gifts. I was going to ask Meg to marry me at the Outer Banks at sunrise. Our family would be across the street at the beach house. We could celebrate afterwards. She knew I was going to ask her to marry her, but she had planned it for like the next summer, and I'm, I wanted to surprise her, and I was insecure because I thought some other guy would swoop in at Cedarville and take her out from under me. And so uh, I had decided I was going to ask her to marry me two years before we knew we were going to get married. So it was a long engagement, but I was okay with that. Uh, so that morning on the beach... Uh, I had asked God, like a perfect sunrise, the clouds were perfect, the, the sun came up, dolphins were jumping where the sun was reflecting off the water, it was like a movie, right? So I read to her 1 Corinthians 13, the classic love passage, and just as I'm ready to lay out the speech of this eloquent words to my beautiful woman that I want to marry for the rest of, and spend the rest of my life with, I read this passage and she looks at me and she says, I thought you were going to ask me to marry you or something. I 
At which point, I pulled the engagement ring out of my pocket and said, huh, well, will you marry me? <laughs> so it did not go as planned in my head. And it's one of those moments where, like that, that played out a lot differently in my, in my head. But it made for a good story. Make loves it when I tell that story. But uh, I had prepped. I had run that through my head. I had, I, had, I had read the passage. I probably didn't even need to read it that morning. I could have, I could have verbatim said it. And I had prepped, and I had prepped, and it just didn't go the way that I wanted to. But I had spent a lot of time preparing for this big moment. Now, I found a video online this week that I think you should watch because I think it shows a pretty amazing moment. Maybe if you're an NFL fan, maybe you remember this moment, but it was awe-inspiring whenever it was live. So if we have that video, go ahead and show that. Who's the running back? a flag. Beckham catch a one-handed that? catch. How in the world? <laughs> oh, my goodness. And Brandon Carr was back there. I mean, he is insane. How do you make that catch? Oh, my goodness. This is sick. Put this to music. I don't think he stepped out either. That may be the greatest catch I've ever seen. Number 39. Penalty's declined. Result of the play. Touchdown. You have to be kidding me. That is impossible. That is absolutely impossible what he just did. That is absolutely impossible what he just did. I, I, that, I remember watching. I didn't remember watching that live. I think the Cowboys lost that game, so that's a good thing. But uh, uh, I remember watching that thinking, like, how does someone, how did, how did he know where to go? How did he know where to get the ball? And then I stumbled across this clip. quarterbacks to throw him those kinds of passes in warm-ups. He spends hours every week getting the quarterback to throw the ball out of bounds with him taking the opportunity to try to grab it out of, out of bounds with one hand. He practices that play. He prepares himself for it. And when the moment came and his quarterback threw the ball where it seemed nobody could catch it, he was prepared to get himself to where he needed to pull it down. And he was the only one that could do it, but he had spent all this time prepping and practicing for that moment. And when the moment came, he was ready for it. So it looked so miraculous. It looked amazing. And in live television, everyone oozed and awes over it. And that's, that's, it's worthy of that because it was an amazing athletic play. But he had actually rehearsed it. He had actually propelled himself for it. He had actually practiced. He had actually prepped for it. Now, I think... We can prep well in our day-to-day lives, and we can prepare for what we see in front of us. When it comes to faith in God, sometimes we are horrible at preparing our hearts to receive something from God. I think that we can make sure that if Thanksgiving is hosted at our home, that everything is perfect, everything is prepared, everything is done ahead of time, everything is planned, everything is ready to go. And we, there's, there's hardly any curveball that could be thrown our way that we wouldn't be ready for because we knew it was coming and we knew it was important and we made what was important to us important to everybody in the room and we were prepped and we were bought up on all the things that we needed and everything was ready and we were prepped. But in life, when something doesn't go the way we expect it to, we want to shake an angry fist at God and say, why do you hate me so much? Or why do you not love me? Or why aren't you living out the attributes that you said you had? Or why is life so hard for me? Or why does good happen to everybody else but me? We don't prepare ourselves to walk in faith for a loving God. Do you realize how many hundreds of years passed between the last prophet and John the Baptist? this faithful voice standing in the wilderness saying, God is going to bring redemption to his people. And how easy it was for him to tune that out. Are we like that? 
God is going to come back and redeem this world someday. So we need to live out the gospel and love our neighbors and take the gospel into our communities because God has promised to send His Son to redeem all of mankind. And it's God's desire that none should perish. And so we need to live with that sense of urgency. We need to prepare ourselves and the people around us for this moment whenever God holds true to His promises. But do we prepare ourselves for that? Are we more concerned with the priority, the urgent things that are in front of us now than the eternal things? See, the Bible is filled with stories of preparation. The Bible is filled with stories of things yet to come. The Bible is filled with these stories of how God's going to redeem the world from sin through the Messiah. In fact, there are prophecies all over the Old Testament that are telling about the Messiah to come, telling us to prepare ourselves. There is uh, the chairman of departments of mathematics and astronomy at Pasadena College. His name is Peter Stoner, and he's kind of fascinated with these biblical prophecies. And he he took about 600 students from the InterVarsity Christian Fellowship, and he looked at eight, just eight, specific prophecies about Jesus. And they came up with these extremely conservative probabilities of each one being fulfilled. And then they considered the likelihood of Jesus himself fulfilling all eight of those prophecies. And the probability, I, I forgot to bring my phone up with me because I, I, wanna, I, wanna, I want you to hear this number and technology is great. So, so, What is 10 to the 17th power? The answer is 99 quadrillion, 999 trillion, 999 billion, 999 million, 999,984. That's the probability of Jesus fulfilling eight prophecies. One in 10 to the 17th power is the probability that one man could fulfill eight prophecies from the Old Testament. And the the leader of this study, he said this, let us try to visualize this, this chance. If you mark one of 10 tickets and place all the tickets in a hat and thoroughly store them up and ask a blindfolded man to draw one, his chance of getting the right ticket is one in 10. Suppose that we take 10 to the 17th power worth of silver dollars and lay them on the face of Texas. They will cover the whole state two feet deep. Now mark one of these silver dollars and stir the whole mass thoroughly all over the state. Blindfold a man and tell him that he can travel as far as he wants, but he must pick up one silver dollar and say that this is the right one. What chance would he have to getting the right one? just the same chance that the prophets would have had, have had of writing these eight prophecies and having them all come true in any one man from their day to the present time, providing they wrote using their own wisdom. So that's the probability of Jesus, just eight. They took eight prophecies. So that's just looking at eight. Now, Jesus fulfilled over 300 prophecies. In one man, he fulfilled over 300 prophecies in the Old Testament in his short life on earth. All of these prophecies that point to a Messiah, all of them that point to Jesus, and this study looked at eight of them. What are the, prof- what are the probabilities that one man could fulfill just eight, and it was 10 to the 17th power, that one man could fulfill all eight of them? And Jesus fulfilled over 300 of them. So I would say that there, is, there, there were significant opportunities throughout the whole Testament lifespan to prepare for the Messiah's arrival. And the story of John the Baptist describes perfectly the anticipation of God's coming Messiah. So read along with me in Matthew chapter 1. We're going to look at, sorry, Matthew chapter 3, I'm sorry. Matthew 3, 
the first three verses. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when he said, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord. Make his path straight. John the Baptist was getting this following, by the way. John the Baptist is is preaching and he's teaching. And since the prophet Malachi comes off the scene, Israel hadn't had a true prophet of the Lord on the scene. So hundreds of years have passed, and there was this mixture in society of frustration because the Hebrew people were now sitting under the rule of the Roman people, this pagan society, and they were anticipating that the Messiah spoken of by the prophets would come to rescue God's people. That's what they were looking for. So now they're under Roman oppression, and they were waiting for the the God to send the Messiah down that would come on the white horse with a whole army, and he'd take out the Roman establishment, and they would get their lives back. That's what they were looking for. So they're, they're hearing this message because they want to be rescued. They are sitting under oppression and they want rescued. So when John says that a Redeemer is coming, that the Messiah is coming, they're all ears. So John is proclaiming this and he's preparing people for the coming Messiah. And there's this excitement that led a lot of people to hear this message and be baptized So if you read on, starting in verse 4, Now John wore a garment of camel's hair and leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. Then Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region about the Jordan were going out to him, and they were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. They're hearing this message of a Messiah coming, and they want to put their trust in a God who would send a Redeemer. They haven't seen it yet but they trust and believe that this Redeemer is coming. They're believing in the message that John's giving, and they're being baptized. And they're doing that because they're trying to prepare their hearts for the awaited, anointed one, this Messiah that's going to come. They're believing this message. Now, flip over to John. That's on page 612 if you're using the Bible in front of you. The book of John, I I want you to see this. John 1... We're going to start at verse 19. I just want you to read, I want you to see a little bit about the person of John the Baptist. And if your your Bible has a heading over it, it might say that you're looking at the testimony of John the Baptist. And this is John starting at verse, John 1, starting at verse 19. And this is the testimony of John when the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, who are you? So listen, real quick, this is what's happening. There's a man who's dressed up in camel hair, who lives in the woods, and his diet consists of locusts and honey. Sounds like a crazy person. And this crazy person is preaching a message that so many people are believing that the religious authorities are catching wind of this crazy guy in the woods that eats bugs and drinks honey. And they want to know who are you? Who are you? Like maybe he was the crazy guy on the street that was, that was screaming into a megaphone and that was entertaining for a while. But now all of a sudden, the religious authorities of the day are like, whoa, there's a lot of people listening to this guy. There's a lot. Of, there are people, hundreds of people that are going into the woods to hear this crazy dude preach. So much, so much so that the religious authorities of the day send a delegation of Levites and high priests down to the River Jordan in the woods to look at this crazy guy and say, who are you? That's where we pick up the story. Verse 20, chapter 1 of John. He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. Okay, so here's here's something I want to draw your attention to. In that day, because of all the prophecies, there were a lot of people that claimed to be the Messiah. And they'd get a following, and people would follow after them. It was kind of what we see in our modern-day cults. A cult leader will say something uh, magnanimous, and people will give give them 
their attention and their loyalties only to find out massive disappointment in the end. They drink the Kool-Aid per se and everything goes poorly for them. And then another one comes on the scene and we, we hear about it, whether it was like a, if you remember David Koresh in Waco, Texas, and you know, we hear these guys that come out of the woodwork and they take the message and they make it sound just believable enough that they can get people who, who are looking for something to believe to latch onto it. And so there's a lot of people that are doing this. And the priests and Levites know that. They've heard these guys before. They've heard these guys teach these lessons before, draw a crowd before. They've seen all this happen before, but this time's different because there's a lot more people. This is becoming, this is, this is a sustainable energy. These are people that are, they're, they're getting this message and they're coming out and saying, listen, this is changing my life. You need to come down to the waters with me and hear this John, the baptizer, tell the story of the coming Messiah. You need to hear this inspirational, it changed my life. I want to live differently. I want to tell people about this. And as this is happening more and more, this seems a whole lot different to the priests and Levites than any other time this has happened. So they send their delegation down and they look at John and they say, are you the Christ? Basically saying, are you just another one of these whack jobs who's trying to pull people astray? Is that who you are? Because everybody up to this point, I'm guessing that they asked that question to, had said yes. If they ever got to the point where they asked them that. Every other person that had led a, a mini movement of any kind that claimed, they probably claimed that they were the Messiah, and that's what got them the, the following. This time's different because they asked the question that culture and society had dictated they should ask, and they look at this guy and they say, are you the Christ? That's why verse 20 is worded the way it was. He confessed and did not deny, so they come to him with charges essentially, John, you are leading people astray. They're coming to you more than they're coming to the temple. What do you have to say for yourself? And he says, I'm not denying any of that, but one thing I will say is I am not the Christ. Verse 21, and they ask then, what then? Are you Elijah? Basically, are you a prophet? Are you claiming to be the great Elijah? Like a crazy person come before you, are you going to claim that too? You're going to claim like you're one of the famous prophets of old, just like some of the other guys that have come before you? And he said, I am not. Are you the prophet? And he answered, no. Verse 22, so they said to him, who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? So they're kind of frustrated now. Okay, this should have been easy. We come down to the crazy guy in the water. We say, are you Jesus? Are you the Messiah? Are you the Christ? They wouldn't have said Jesus because they would have said the Christ or the Messiah because they didn't identify the Messiah as Jesus until later on in the story. They would have said, are you the Christ? Are you the Redeemer? Are you the Messiah? No. All right, that didn't work. Last crazy guy said he was. All right, are you Elijah? You one of the famous prophets? No. Right, that didn't work either. Uh, are you the prophet? No. All right, dude, work with us here because we got to go back to the temple and give a report of what we saw. And every time we've interrogated a crazy guy that had a crazy message like yours before, they answered the question with a yes to one of those previous questions. Now we don't know what... we got to tell the people we go back to who you are. we got to know whether this is a viable threat to our establishment or not. And he said, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. Now they had, sent, they had been sent from the Pharisees, verse 24. They asked him, then why are you baptizing if you are neither the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? 26, John answered them, I baptize with water, but among you stands one you do not know, even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. These things took place in Bethany across the Jordan where John was baptizing. Okay, so here's what's happening, and here's why this is all important. When they ask him, uh, why are you baptizing? They say, okay, so who are you? And he claims prophecy, which we're going to look at here in a second. 
They ask him, who are you? He tells them, I am the one crying out. It says in verse 24, now they had been sent from the Pharisees. That's important because the Pharisees would have known the prophecy. They would have known the book of Isaiah. They would have known the letter. They would have known the prophecy. And so they, when he quotes back to them why he's there, now just for giggles, turn back with me. It's on page 410 if you're looking at the Bible in front of you in Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 40. This is written hundreds of years before John the Baptist. Isaiah 40. Like I said, it's on page 410 if you're using the Bible in front of you. Isaiah 40. Look at verses 3 through 5 with me. A voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley should be lifted up and every mountain and hill be made low. The uneven ground shall become level and the rough places a plain and the glory of the Lord shall be revealed and all flesh shall see it together for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. These are the exact words that John the Baptist preaches. So whenever the Pharisees send this delegation and they interview John and he says, so who are you then? What are you doing here? He drops a huge bomb on them by saying, I am the one, the voice crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Now that would have been an awe-inspiring statement to men who had spent their whole lives studying the scriptures because this is legit prophecy Wait a second, before the Messiah comes, there needs to be a forerunner to the Messiah, and this man's claiming to be him, and he's claiming the prophecy is about him, and there's evidence to support that it's true. So they think they're going to drop a bomb on him by saying, well, then why do you baptize? You don't have the authority to baptize. And John answers them, I baptize with water. This is just a symbol. There's nothing mystical about what I'm doing. This is a symbol. These people are devoting their lives to something, and they're making that public. This is a symbol. I baptize with water, but among you stands one you do not know. And even he who comes after me, I love this, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie, I'm not worthy to untie Jesus' shoe. These things took place in Bethany across the Jordan where John was baptizing. So John's, John was working his whole life to prepare the way of Jesus. And may I remind us all, unapologetically, John was preparing the world for Jesus to come on the scene you realize the world had waited thousands of years for this. From the dawn of creation, from the moment of the fall that we read about in Genesis 3, there was a promise that God would send a redeemer. There were signs riddled through the Old Testament. When God finds Adam and Eve and they're ashamed of themselves because they're naked in the garden and, God's, and they've, they've, made, they've taken fig leaves and they've made themselves some covering so they don't feel embarrassed by their nakedness. And God says, I will make you a covering sufficient for you. And he takes animal skin. To, for animal skin to be given to them, something had to die. Something had to be sacrificed for them to be sufficiently covered. That was in Genesis. Right at the beginning of the story, God's giving us a sign that someone, something, some sacrifice has to be made. Blood has to be shed for sin to be covered for sin to be eradicated, for us to be sufficiently covered. God has to do that. And those promises are riddled through Scripture. The world had waited for thousands of years. And in John 1, listen to what happens next. So we end with the location in verse 28. In verse 29, the next day, the next day he saw Jesus coming toward him. And said this, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Put yourself in that moment. You've heard John 
talk about this. You've believed it. And just, just the day before, he says, there is one who is amongst you. <gasps> Did we catch that before? John is saying, the day before this happens, that the Messiah isn't just coming. He's already here, and you don't know who he is. The people who caught that back in the day, I picture having a pretty restless night's sleep in eager anticipation to come back and hear more from John about maybe some hints about who this is. So as those people show up the next day to hear John teach, and as they've brought people with them to say, you have to hear this message about the Messiah, and the crowds gather along the, the Jordan banks, and John clears his throat, ready to give that day's message to encourage people that the Messiah is coming. He looks across the crowd, and who does he see? His cousin Jesus, and he knows He's the Savior and His words that come out of His mouth. is behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is who I was talking about when I said, After me comes a man who ranks before me because he was before me. I myself did not know him, verse 31. But for this purpose I came baptizing with water that he might be revealed to Israel. You get this moment? John's whole life is preparation for right now. His whole existence is about this moment when he tells the masses that are coming that there's this season of life that's coming upon you that you're going to have access to the one who's going to redeem us from the curse of sin. And he's living amongst us now and nobody knows who he is. And you don't... Ra there he is. Behold, folks, he's here. The Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He is amongst us. He is here. Turn your attention because He's coming. He's right there. That's what John says. Could you, can you hear it in His voice? You put yourself there. Can you hear it? Can you feel it? The preparation, the time He had put into getting people to understand who the Messiah was. And I just think how gracious of God to allow John to see it. How gracious of God to allow John to see the Messiah. He wasn't promised that necessarily. As he's teaching and preparing people, he sees him. And the first words that come out of his mouth. Behold. You ever, you ever see something that makes you behold it? I don't want to be super sappy, but I can tell you this. The first time that I remember feeling that was when the back doors at Pike Grace Brethren Church opened up and I saw my wife in her wedding dress. I hadn't seen it yet. I didn't know what it looked like. I didn't know what she was going to look like, but I had thought, I had imagined it for years. It's one of those moments where everybody wants to, you know, you're doing the back and forth. You want to see the bride, but is the groom crying? I want to see the bride, but is the groom crying? Right? And I was. And I remember, like, that, that word behold, that's what I picture. Like, just stop. The world pauses. I don't know what song was playing. I don't know what, I know what song was playing because I've seen the video recap. But I, I couldn't hear anything. And that room could have been empty. It was filled with people that we loved and loved us, but it could have been empty. I was locked in one thing. I was beholding her. It was unbelievable. This moment had come. I couldn't believe it. And she was radiant. I was beholding that. You realize this is the moment where John, his whole life is built up to this moment, and he sees Jesus, and that's the first thing that comes out of his mouth. Behold, you guys Stop. Stop what you're doing. Stop thinking about anything. Stop it. Listen, stop. Look. In that moment, at my wedding, everyone can look back and say, oh, that was beautiful, and I cried. It was beautiful, and blah, 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 right? To me, it meant more than anybody else in the room. She was my wife. But what John's saying is, everybody behold, and look, this isn't just for me. This is for all of you. Look at this. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. 
I think we've heard certain statements in the church for so long. I think if I move around too much, I'm going to knock Mary over. Has anyone been concerned about her existence here? Okay. Sorry. Uh, ADD. Where was I? Anyway, so we have, these, we have these statements that we hear from Scripture. And if you've been around the church long enough, maybe you've heard them and, uh, and, and you can quote them. Every once in a while, I need to put myself in the story. I need to, I need to picture my life as John the Baptist. And the, he devoted his life so much to this moment, this story, this, this, this message that nothing else in life mattered to him. I mean, to the point where it didn't matter to him what he ate or what he wore or how he looked. Like, if John the Baptist was married, his wife would be like, John, could you just look at pants today? Like, could you just, like, look camel skin. John, I understand you're passing about your message, but, like, could you, like, eat a sandwich? I made you some coffee. Like, comb your hair, right? Like, I understand. I appreciate the message, but, like, no, nothing else mattered to John. Nothing except for this one thing. God had put a calling on his life to prepare the way for the Messiah, to cut a path through the wilderness, that he was the one crying in the wilderness, make a highway for our God. You cut that lane through. You make it clear, plain as day. Make that, that your message, your work, your preparation would make when Jesus comes on the scene, it would make so easy for people to see him and behold him because you have done the work of preparing people's hearts to watch for him and to recognize him when they see him. And so when John's getting ready for another day of getting people to notice who Jesus is as he's preparing his heart, as he knows the day's coming close, he looks out across the crowd and there's Jesus and he says, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And the crowd there knew exactly who he was talking about. They didn't know what he looked like yet. They didn't know his name, but they were able to put a face to it that day and they knew exactly who he was talking about. They didn't have to know what he looked like because when John, who they trusted with this message, said, that's the one, that's the Christ, they looked and they saw and they believed. And God in his graciousness puts a sign there. The dove descends from heaven and, and lands on him and you hear a voice from heaven say, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Game changer. John's whole life was to prepare for this moment. So when Jesus started his ministry, people were already excited about the possibility of God doing a new work. Because John the Baptist was used to prepare people's hearts to meet the Messiah. And the time of Advent, this time of year, is our time of preparation. It's our time of excitement. It should be a time in which, like John the Baptist, we can prepare our hearts to receive from God. We're called to be like John the Baptist. We're called to prepare the world we come into contact with for the final coming of Jesus. We're called to, to prepare the world that the Messiah is coming back that we've been saved from our sins, but death, and death has been conquered, and Jesus is on the throne, but someday he's coming back to make all things new, and he wants to take us with him. But if you don't believe who God made you to be, then you won't live out of that purpose. You will not be prepared, and you will not be preparing others. If you're sitting here today and you don't believe that you are a child of God, if you're not living out of that truth, if you've let doubt, lies, circumstances, anxiety, fear, anything creep in to rob you of the joy of knowing who Christ is and being a child of God, you're not prepared and you're not preparing others for the beautiful moment that you, you can say, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world.
if you mean it when you say, I am who you say I am, which we're going to say in a little bit, then we need to prepare our hearts to be used by God. The message of our lives need to be similar to John's. So listen, I'm going to fast forward into John's story a little bit. In John 3, verse 30, we see something that that John says is just amazing. And it wraps up this amazing, remarkable man that he spent his whole life preparing people for Jesus. And as the crowds start to follow Jesus, these masses of people that used to come to the Jordan to hear John, they're less and less. And the crowds are following Jesus. And finally, someone who still wants to hear what John has to say. And all John's doing is putting attention on Jesus. So as people come in to hear him preach, he's like, hey, listen, I don't have anything of value to say as much as Jesus does. So follow my cousin Jesus. He's the Messiah. Follow his teaching. Be like him. Be passionate about his message. Follow him. And people come to him and say, John, hordes of people are not listening to your teaching and they're following after Jesus. And John's answer to that is in John 3, verse 30. He must increase, but I must decrease. He must become more and more. I must become less and less. My time's over, he says. My job was to prepare people for Jesus, and he's here. I have no problem with you following him. Please, go. Follow Jesus. Matter of fact, I'm following Jesus. So you can follow me as I follow Jesus if you want, but it's all about him. I must become less and less in the storyline. Jesus must become more and more. And let me ask you something. Did that happen? Does our culture understand as much about John the Baptist as we do about Jesus? John accomplished his mission to prepare people for Jesus, and then to actively live out of this humble posture that said, Jesus must become more and more. I must become less and less. He must increase, but I must decrease. What if we lived like that? What if we lived like John the Baptist? What if our whole lives were just to prepare people for Jesus? By the way, If you're looking for purpose in life, if you're looking for a purpose statement for your life, if you're here today and you're redeemed of the Lord and living in the beauty and the truth and the reality that Jesus did indeed come and conquer death and conquer sin and and, and did that so that you would have the benefit of salvation afforded to you and you live in that salvation, you have a purpose statement. And it's John 3.30. Your purpose in life is to become less and less and make Jesus more and more. That is your purpose in life. If anything we do is drawing more attention to us, whether that's negative attention or positive attention, whether that's the whole, uh, you know, I was just jokingly telling Meg that our society, we uh, we put a picture of ourselves up like this, and then we say, I hate my hair today. Only fishing for people to say, no, your hair looks so good. I love it. No, I hate it. Ew. Right? That, that's, a, that's, a, that's a picture of how we live as a society. And if we make ourselves more and more, we get it backwards. To me, John the Baptist, man, one of the greatest heroes in Scripture. He lived his whole life in second place. He lived his whole life in second place. And he was perfectly fine with that as long as Jesus was in first. So he was running hard after God. Hard to keep pace with John the Baptist in his pursuit of God. Hard to keep pace with that. He was okay finishing second as long as Jesus was first. And he wanted as many people as possible to be prepared for Jesus. And when Jesus showed up in their lives, they knew they were looking at Jesus because John had prepared their hearts to recognize him. And that, church, 
is your job. That is your purpose. To the people we interact with, to our families, to our friends, to anybody that comes in contact with the redeemed one of Christ, we are to prepare people to the point where when they see Jesus for the first time, they know who they're looking at because they've seen him in us first. Our lives need to reflect that purpose. And if we get upset or angry about anything that doesn't exalt Jesus, we might need to check ourselves at the door and see if the things that are really rallying us up, things that are really upsetting us, the things that are making us passionate, the things that are getting us annoyed, are they reflective of preparing people for Jesus? Or is this just the way that Satan's trying to derail God's work? Just like those Pharisees that come to John and say, it's time to disrupt this message. And John says, listen, I'll answer all your questions. I don't have anything to hide. I'm here to prepare people for Jesus. You don't have to like what I have to say. You don't have to like how I'm doing things. You also don't have to come to the river to hear me teach. That's what John says. So the message made its way to you. You're annoyed by that. I didn't ask you to come down here. I didn't ask you to come and approve what I had to say. I don't care if you approve what I have to say. That's what John's saying to them. My job is to prepare you for Jesus. So John lives out of that. He leads out of that unapologetically. Church, that is our calling. That's our purpose, to prepare people to meet Jesus. So as this Advent season starts, and today officially starts. Are we the kind of people that are preparing others to meet Jesus? Are we prepared to meet Jesus? Are we preparing our hearts? Are we letting everything out here distract us from our true purpose? That's on us if we do. God, thank you for already cementing our identity because of the cross. The cross cross tells us who we are. The cross allows us to to sing at the top of our lungs, I am a child of God. Yes, I am. The cross allows us to, with, with so much celebration, sing out loud, I am who you say I am. The cross allows us to walk out these doors and feel empowered with the only message that reconciles a lost world back to a loving God. So may we not get distracted by the dangling things hanging in front of us to pull our attention, our gaze, our love, and our affection, our devotion away from you. And may all that stuff fall into the background as bit parts in the main storyline of us being worked by you to prepare others for you and for our hearts to be prepared for you. May we accept the reality that we are who you say we are. 